following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. I uh, hope everyone's doing okay. It's uh, kind of, I have a kind of rash of cold days the last few weeks, and so hopefully some uh, warmer weather will break in pretty soon here. Um, hope you're having a pretty good 2022 so far. Um, we are starting uh, with this morning, resuming back into the Sermon on the Mount series. And so uh, join with me in a word of prayer, and we will get into the word uh, together. Father, we um, look to you for your continued care over us. Um, this pandemic has taught us how small we are and uh, how fragile any sense of security can really be, and yet our faith teaches us that you are greater than the circumstances that surround us. And so we pray that we would not be overcome by fear, but that faith would lead us into continuing to pursue what it means to live as disciples of Jesus and what it means to follow after you. And let us um, have eyes that are open to understand um, what your heart is for us through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, that as we understand the wisdom of Jesus, your Son, that we uh, would have the obedience to uh, live in according to the things that he has called us to do as his followers. And so even now as we talk about this issue of our treasures, uh, we pray that our hearts would be open to your Spirit speaking into us to show um, where you may be wanting to challenge us and stir in us an active response and obedience uh, to your word of truth. So we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, on Monday, we are going to observe uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Um, in August 63, uh, MLK delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C., where he said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will be judged by the color of their, uh, uh, will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. I think, uh, and I, I actually um, read through and then listened to that entire speech yesterday. And as I was listening to it, I was thinking that MLK's dream is in some ways as elusive today as it was when he delivered it 60 years ago, isn't it? Uh, on those steps of that Lincoln Memorial. America, in some ways, seems as divided as ever. Um, and yet, I still uh, felt my heart moving with that speech, that this is still a worthwhile cause to fight for, is to see um, what it means for the kingdom of God to even transform racial relationships in America and see that kind of healing in our land. It's interesting because the following year in 1964, um, Martin Luther King um, actually won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work to fight against racial injustice. 
And uh, what I found interesting was that he donated the entirety of his prize money, uh, which in today's dollars would have been equivalent to about $500,000 completely to the civil rights movement. And I think that made this pretty amazing statement to the world that for Martin Luther King, there were some things that were more important in life than financial riches. And I, I think that leads us to the topic for this morning about what we treasure most in our life as we resume this Sermon on the Mount series. Um, This is starting in chapter 6, verse 19, the last major section of the sermon. Um, And in it, he continues to paint this radical picture of what kingdom living ought to look like for his followers. Uh, D. Carson writes in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, life in the kingdom is not simply a question of crossing one hurdle or passing one test, followed by relative indifference to kingdom norms. Involved, rather, is that deep repentance which willingly orients all of life around these norms. Followers of Jesus comprehend that all of life is to be lived and all its attitudes are to be formed according to the perspectives of the kingdom. What I think Carson is saying is that for, for sadly, a lot of Christians, it's just this sense that I said the sinner's prayer. I stood up at the altar call, and now I'm saved, and then now that I know where I'm going to go after I die, I can pretty much just resume life as usual, like I was living before I met Jesus. And what the Sermon on the Mount is saying is categorically no. To be a follower of Jesus means we live radically different than we did before we met Christ. And that there has to be a very real-world impact of what it means to live in that kingdom. And nowhere is it more pronounced, arguably, than in how we deal with our finances, our money. Jesus basically uses three metaphors to drive his point about material possessions. And we can basically summarize them as storing up treasures, and then healthy eyes, And then thirdly is serving two masters. And so for my message today, I'm basically just going to follow that outline of uh, the three metaphors that Jesus himself used. And so let's start with this idea of storing up treasures. Verses 19 to 21 of Matthew 6, it says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, shortly before we moved out to begin our missionary work in Africa, back in 2004, uh, my wife Betty uh, bought each of our uh, five kids a stuffed animal uh, that would basically become their goodnight animal that they would sleep with. And these stuffed animals quickly became our children's favorite toys. Um, But our youngest, Judah, who actually was not born yet, (laughs) uh, he developed a really deep and special bond with his stuffed animal. And I think it's because he was given it from the day he was born. It was in his crib. He had an elephant. And the name on the tag of this elephant was Winks. I guess that's what the manufacturer named this elephant was Winks. And Judah, as an infant, would hug this elephant every night as he fell asleep in his crib. And once he began to talk, 
Judah began to call this animal his little Winx baby. Okay? So he added baby to the end of it, and he called it Winx baby. And he never went anywhere without Winx baby. Over time, it became pretty worn out and pretty ratty looking. And so we had to wash it every once in a while because he, he would always kind of put it in his mouth and chew on it and stuff like that. And so this was while we were living in Africa. And after we washed it once, we had to hang it by its ears on the laundry line outside. And Judah happened to see it hanging by its ears, suspended on that laundry line, and he freaked out. And he was crying bloody murder that we would do this to his dear friend, Winx Baby. Um, over time, Judah chewed off the eyes of Winx Baby, which were like little, little buttons. And so Betty sewed uh, with thick black thread new eyes so that he couldn't chew them off again. And if you look carefully, those are the eyes that he has in that photograph. I actually thought it looked pretty macabre, like a voodoo doll or something. <laughs> um, but even after having lost its eyes, it was unthinkable to get rid of this. I mean, as an adult, you just, I was thinking, like, next time we're back in the U.S., we'll just buy a replacement. Uh, it shows how little you know about the heart of a child, right? Uh, it was just unthinkable, no matter how tattered and broken down Winx Baby got. Um, we sewed it together and washed it and did everything we can uh, because basically Winx Baby was all that mattered to Judah. I was actually genuinely concerned about how emotionally attached Judah was to this doll. I, I actually really began to wonder would there ever come a day where he could separate himself from it? Um, would Wings Baby stand at his wedding, you know? Would it join him in his honeymoon? I really literally thought that might happen, you know? Um, you know, Wings Baby was Judah's treasure. It was his one possession more valuable to him than anything else in this world. And that's what Jesus talks about at the beginning of what he wants to say about material possessions. He wants to talk about treasuring things. What does it mean to treasure something? Because he's not simply talking about owning things, storing things as material possessions. He doesn't use the generic word for possessions. He talks about them as treasures, meaning something that elicits joy in the heart of the one possessing it. Our treasures are the things that we hold closest to our heart, what we value more than anything else. And all of us treasure something, whether we acknowledge it or not. It's interesting, camp, concentration camp survivors during World War II, they told of stories of risking their lives in these camps in order to hide their treasures from their Nazi captors. Often these things were materially worthless, a letter, a photograph, a little trinket, a child's toy. And yet they were willing to risk their life to hide them and hold on to them. Because to lose those treasures would have meant they would have lost their entire motivation to survive another day in that hell, in that concentration camp. Why? Because these treasures represented something so precious to them. It represented the whole meaning of life for them. Dallas Willard writes, everyone has treasures. 
This is an essential part of what it is to be human. To have nothing that one treasures is to be in a non-human condition. And nothing degrades people more than to scorn or destroy or to deprive them of their treasures. Indeed, merely to pry into what one's treasures are is a severe intrusion. Apart from very special considerations, no one has a right even to know what our treasures are. A main part of intimacy between two persons is precisely mutual knowledge of their treasures. Treasures are directly connected to our spirit or will and thus to our dignity as persons. It is, for example, very important for parents to respect the treasure space of children. It lies right at the center of the child's soul. And great harm can be done if it is not respected and even fostered. And so as I begin the message this morning, I want to ask you directly, what are your treasures? What are your treasures? What are the things that, if you were to lose, would almost make life feel not worth living anymore? Many of us think that when Jesus is talking about storing treasures in heaven versus treasures on earth, he's basically talking about delayed gratification, basically investing in the next life rather than enjoying this life. But that's not really what he's talking about. There may be a future component to the idea of treasures in heaven, but that's not what he's really primarily saying here. When the Bible talks about heaven, in fact, the vast majority of the time, it's not talking about the afterlife, like what happens when you die. Instead, when the Bible talks about heaven, most often it's just simply referring to the place where God dwells. And that's not just talking about the future, but even in this present age, heaven is basically the domain of God, where his will is done, as it says in the Lord's Prayer. And so when Jesus says, store for yourself treasures in heaven, the point is not about future versus present as much as it is put your investments in the things that matter to the heart of God more than the things that this world chases after. That's the point about comparing treasures in heaven and treasures on earth. We see that same spirit in what Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Again, Paul is not trying to say think about the future, not the present. That's not the contrast. It is now that you are in Christ, set your mind on the things of Christ, on the things of God, the things of his kingdom, the things that God cares about. Let you, your heart rest on those things and not the things that the world is concerned about. Practically, what does that mean? Well, Paul says it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7 to 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the age to come, 
so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So here, there's no denying it. There is a future component to that. But really, it's saying in this life, invest with whatever resources that God has entrusted to you, to the things that are in his mind, which financially speaking is about giving to those in need and investing in his mission, his work, his causes, the things that are advancing his kingdom in this present age, in this life. Be generous to those in need. That's what it means to set your mind on things above and not on things in this world. What I think Jesus and Paul are basically saying is, if your faith is real, it has to show itself in how you view your money and your material possessions. What's so worrisome, though, is that study after study of the church in America demonstrates that the truth is there actually is no significant difference in how Christians spend their money and how non-Christians spend their money in this country. Statistically insignificant. Aside from the 1% or 2% that Christians tend to give to the church. Scott McKnight writes, If the kingdom vision of Jesus doesn't reshape our approach to possessions, then we are not living out the kingdom vision. If we are living to the end of our means and have little for the poor, if we are extending our budgets and giving only from what is left over, and if we have not cut back on how we live, then we are not embracing the kingdom vision of Jesus. Money has a way of freezing our hearts, hands and feet and stiffening our hearts. And at the very end of what Jesus is saying in verse 21 is the issue of why does this matter so much to God? Well, again, the argument isn't that God needs our money, but what he wants, what God is after more than anything else in our life is our heart, our heart. That's what God is jealous for. Proverbs 27 Verse 19 says, as water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. What the proverb is saying is that our life, our destiny, everything that we are is determined by what's in our heart. Your heart is at the very core of who you are. It controls your thoughts and it determines your emotions. It will Dictate what you value most and lead you to the choices that you make in your life. And Jesus argues that the heart will always follow what you treasure most. Where you have invested your time and your money, there you will find your heart. And so Jesus is saying, be careful what your treasure is. Because where your treasure is placed, there so will I find your heart. This leads us to the second metaphor that Jesus uses of the eyes determining the light or darkness that is inside us. 
In verses 22 to 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, this is kind of a confusing metaphor. It's not really easy to understand what Jesus means when he calls the eyes the lamp of the body. And there's actually some debate among scholars as to what exactly Jesus means by this. But I think it's the best way to think about what Jesus is trying to say here is simply this. If your body is like a room, then your eyes are like a lamp that can bring light into that room of your body. And so then the question that Jesus is asking is, what is that lens of your eye through which light comes into your body? Because that will have a profound impact on the kind of heart that you will possess and the person that you will become. Is it a clear window of light that then brings light into you? Or is it a dark and cloudy lens that makes your whole body dark. And Jesus says, if that is the case, how great is that darkness? It pollutes everything. It covers every aspect of the being that you are. What is it that your eyes are doing to your heart? You know, uh, Fantasy Island used to be one of my favorite shows when I was a kid. Did anyone else grow up watching it? A few hands up there. Kind of showing my age, I guess. This was a show back in the 70s and 80s. And uh, guests would come to Fantasy Island with this promise of experiencing their greatest fantasies. And interestingly, Fox, uh, the Fox Network, revived the show uh, just last year. And so, um, out of nostalgia, I thought I'd check it out. And so I was watching the first episode of the first season, and as I was watching the remake of it, I was reminded that the show's premise is actually deeper than you expect it to be, because the show's premise was this. The fantasies that the guests choose when they come to Fantasy Island all are basically flowing out of their brokenness. And what happens when they come to Fantasy Island is they don't just get their fantasy, but what they end up getting is that they are being confronted by their brokenness. And until they have the courage to face that brokenness, they can't leave the island a changed person. It's actually a pretty profound and deep show when you really think about it. You see, people visit Fantasy Island hoping to get what they wanted but the island has its own agenda to give them what they truly need. And so in the first episode of the remake, a successful morning show host named Christine arrives on Fantasy Island with a simple wish to just eat whatever she wants without gaining weight. That's her fantasy. Just binge eat for a week and then go home without having gained a single pound. And at first, Christine is having the time of her life eating everything that she wants without guilt or penalty. But as the days go by, 
the island forces her to deal with the deeper question of what does food represent in her life. And when she was young, it's discovered, her father always shamed her about her weight and pressured her to eat less and less so that she could stay thin and be successful as a woman. And so for her, food was a pleasure that she could never truly enjoy because of all of the horrible guilt that was induced by her father's upbringing of her. And it was only when she had the courage to confront this destructive view of food, and more importantly, to no longer define her worth by her weight, that she was truly set free from her demons. And what turned into a a week of binge eating actually turned into freedom for her that would last for her life. I think it's something similar to what Jesus is saying here about your eyes and what it does to your heart. Because in the same way Jesus is saying, when we see money and possessions through a distorted eyes that clouds our mind, it darkens our heart so that it ends up messing up everything so that we want all the wrong things in life. All of our fantasies are turned upside down. When we don't see clearly, we devalue the things that God cares about and chase after the things that have very little value in his eyes. I think that's what he means when he talks about the eyes that are cloudy, that are leading to a darkness of the soul. He is saying we live in this utterly upside-down world that is so messed up. This world values everything that God doesn't care about and dismisses and discards the things that matter most to him. We judge a person's worth by their status in society and their income level. We think having more and more things will make us happier and live a better life, but it really never does, does it? I shared this story once before, but I thought it's appropriate for this uh, message. Once during, uh, during our years as missionaries in Kenya, uh, one of the first things that I did was buy a car. They actually recommend you not to buy a car in your first year um, as a missionary, but Betty was seven months pregnant, and I needed a way to get her to the hospital, <laughs> and I wasn't going to rely on the buses. And so we bought a car almost from day one. Um, so we bought this Toyota Land Cruiser VX. Um, and it was six years old. We bought it used. It was six years old when we bought it. But the truth is, it just felt like it had a lot more wear and tear than a car that was six years old, at least by American standards. There was a lot of engine problems. There was a problem with the turbo system and the fuel injection system, so that sometimes when you're going up a steep hill, uh, for an engine that size, it should have easily been able to climb that hill, but sometimes the engine would almost stall out and I couldn't make it up the hill. Um, the interior was not really pretty. Uh, the leather on the steering wheel as well as the, in the gear shift uh, were really worn out. I don't know who the previous driver was, but this guy would treat this guy really roughly because there were a lot of bare patches in the leather. It was all falling apart. And then even the upholstery in the car was kind of dingy and had stains on it. And the whole car just kind of smelled musty, a little bit moldy. <clears throat> um, 
And so <clears throat> I had a lot of frustrations with this car, you know. But despite that, I was always struck by the excitement that these local villagers had whenever I gave them a ride in my Toyota Land Cruiser. Because for them, it was literally like riding a Rolls Royce, okay? And I would sometimes just catch them in my rearview mirror. And you could see them just like looking around like this. And then they're just running their fingers on all the buttons. And they're touching the soft, you know, fabric. And you just see them like just touching everything like they were riding in a spaceship or something like that. And here was the thing about that experience. Was up to that point, I just could not fathom how the super rich could actually uh, get numb to the luxuries that they enjoy. You know, like, how could you ever get so wealthy that you would take for granted riding in a private jet or running around in a half a million dollar exotic sports car? Like, the thought of ever getting used to something like that was insane to me. But in that moment, having that Kenyan villager in my land cruiser, I realized comparing myself to them, I was no different. Because I took for granted, even resented, a car that they could not imagine owning in their wild, wildest dreams. And yet it's crazy how money works that way, right? Because we are never satisfied with what we have presently. You know, someone else can look at our house and go, oh my goodness, you live in a house like that? I go, this place? You don't know the half of it. <laughs> you know, the, the toilet upstairs doesn't always work so well, whatever. And everyone else is like, oh my goodness, this place is amazing. But when we look upstream <laughs> at how wealthier people live, we go, now if I was there, now that would be amazing. That would answer so many of my problems. And that would bring about a level of happiness that I'm pretty sure would be pretty amazing. It's this great lie of wealth. It's this great illusion that causes us to always be dissatisfied with what we have in the present, but always eyeing with jealousy the people that are ahead of us. And Jesus says that's what is happening with our eyes. Is it is like a poison. It is like a dimness that is causing a darkness in your heart so that the entirety of the person that you are becomes dark like that. When your eyes are unhealthy, our whole perspective of reality becomes distorted. Jamie Smith writes in You Are What You Love, to be human is to be on a quest. To live is to be embarked on a kind of unconscious journey toward a destination of your dreams. We live leaning forward, bent on arriving at the place we long for. To be human is to be animated and oriented by some vision of the good life, some picture of what we think counts as flourishing. And we want that. We crave it. We desire it. This is why our most fundamental mode of orientation to the world is love. We are oriented by our longings, directed by our desires. You can't not love. It's why the heart is the seat and fulcrum of the human person, the engine that drives our existence. We are lovers first and foremost. We are what we love. 
We all have a vision of what flourishing is. And whether we acknowledge it or not, that becomes our true north that we are pursuing. And so what Jesus is saying is, what is that true north? Do, the, does, do your eyes provide a light into your soul that shows the truth as God sees it? Or are you living in the darkness of the lie of the bondage of material possessions? That's if only I could have a little more. My life would be so enriched. I would be so happier. Well, that leads us to Jesus' last point. And it's his most forceful one. Where he uses the metaphor of a slave trying to serve two masters simultaneously. Matthew 6, verse 24, it says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That word that the NIV translates as money is not actually the generic term for currency. It actually uses a very unusual word here. That's the Greek word mammon. And it would be like writing the word money with a capital M. Mammon comes from actually another word which had the meaning of trust or basically uh, reliance on something. And basically, by calling money mammon, what Jesus is doing is he's personifying money as if it were a god. And his point is clear that he's not just talking about personal financial principles. He's not even talking about an economic system here. What he is talking about is idolatry. Idolatry. <clears throat> when it comes to material possessions, the issue, as Jesus points out, is ultimately one of worship. Worship. Jesus exposes the lie that we can pursue both God and money. But what he argues is that there is an inherent conflict of interests when you try to serve both God and serve the pursuit of wealth. And he says, no matter how gifted you think you are of holding that tension, you cannot resolve that tension because they are at odds with each other. Of all of the idols that we can worship in this world, I think there is a good argument that money is the most powerful of them all because with money, you can get everything else that you want in life. With money, we can have an almost divine power over our world. With money, it's basically my will be done on earth. Money has this amazing way of seeming to be able to solve all of our problems and open a whole new world of opportunities and experiences. Money can shelter us from the storms of life so that we don't have to struggle like others do who are less fortunate than us. Money, in fact, can take such good care of us that we can get to the point where, if we're really honest, when you have money and enough of it, you don't really feel like you need God all that much in your life. In other words, what Jesus is saying, I think, is seen from one perspective Money is a competing and, in the eyes of some, a very capable master. 
Dallas Willard again writes, We cannot but serve our treasures. We labor all day for them and think about them all night. They fill our dreams, but it is not uncommon for people to think that they can treasure this world and the invisible kingdom as well, that they can serve both. Perhaps we can make this work for a while, but there will come a time when one must be subordinate to the other. We simply cannot have two ultimate goals or points of reference for our actions. This is how life is, and no one escapes. You cannot be the servant of both God's of God and the things on earth, because their requirements conflict. Unless you have already put God first, for example, what you will have to do to be financially secure, impress other people, or to fulfill your desires will invariably lead you against God's wishes. That is why the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no gods who takes priority over me, is the first of the Ten Commandments. But if we're really honest, I think many of us deceive ourselves into thinking that, you know, the truth is it's not really that hard to pursue wealth and God. You know, I feel like I've done it pretty well in my life. Let me actually, as I start to wrap up this message, tell you just maybe one last story here. Our family um, moved to a different part of Chicago, uh, Chicagoland, when I was in junior high. And in that move, I left behind uh, a really dear and close best friend that I had uh, named Ben. But it didn't take long when moving into this new neighborhood uh, when I made a new best friend, and his name was Jim. And so for my first birthday after the move, I thought it would be a great idea if I could celebrate my birthday uh, together with both Ben and with Jim. And so I invited them both to a weekend of skiing because I back then in high school I used to love skiing uh, in junior high. Um, <laughs> but here was the thing. I never thought through it to think how different Ben and Jim were. Uh, Ben, my old best friend, was this small, scrawny Jewish kid who was really brainy slash nerdy. And uh, so we had that in common, you know? And Ben came from actually a very wealthy family. He was one of the families that had the very first Apple computers, actually. I mean, I mean literally one of the first off the production line. Uh, and so I used to go over to his house all the time and play with his Apple computer. Ben was cocky, and he was opinionated, and he never hesitated to share what he thought about someone or something. Jim, on the other hand, was from Texas. He was your classic good old boy, you know? And he had just moved to the Chicago area with his family. He was this no-nonsense kid. He was muscular. He was athletic. He loved sports and the military. He got me into the Civil Air Patrol, and he was the one that convinced me to try out for the football team my freshman year because no best friend of his wasn't going to play football. <laughs> so I brought these two friends together for my birthday ski trip. And from the beginning, I realized what a mistake it was 
It was like mixing oil and water. They hated each other from the moment that they met. And it was a miserable weekend. You know, I would, my brother was on the trip too and stuff, and so, you know, we, I would take turns going up the ski lift, once with Ben, once with Jim. And every time we were going up, you know, they were trashing the other guy and wondering how in the world I could be friends with a guy like that. I want to ask you, have you ever been caught in the middle of two people that can't stand each other? But the truth is you care deeply about both of them. You know how uncomfortable it is to try to maintain your own friendship with each of them while they are trying to pull you to their side and get you to turn on the other person. That's a horrible dynamic to be caught in, in a triangle like that. And I suspect many of you have had at least one experience in life where that happened to you. Well, I think this. Jesus is saying that's exactly what happens when you try to pursue both wealth and me. What is worrisome is that so many Christians cannot identify the tension that ought to exist when we're pursuing money and God at the same time. And maybe the question is, what is that saying about my relationship to material possessions or to God? D.A. Carson writes, let us admit it. Many, many of us try very hard to compromise in this area. Two jobs become available. And for most of us, the weightiest factor prompting us uh, to select the one or the other will be the salary, not the opportunity presented by each option to serve the Lord. Or we make a needless move to a bigger and better car or a bigger and better home for no other reason than to keep up with or surpass peers. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at here, is there is this illusion that you can have it all. And sometimes we get so fixated on how much does God expect me to give and what should I tithe and all of that. And maybe what Jesus is saying is it's not so much about dollar amounts here, but it's just that there is something about the pursuit of money that starts to veer into the realm of worship that becomes so all-consuming in the human heart that you must guard yourself against. Jesus tells a parable of a sower who sows seeds among different kinds of soils. And based on each soil type, they have different outcomes, eternal destinies. And the disciples are totally confused by this parable. They go, we don't get anything. Why are you always telling us stuff in riddles? Like, why can't you just talk more plainly, Jesus? And so Jesus says, okay, you thick-headed guys. Here's what the parable means. And when he gets to this soil that's thorny, this is what he says in Matthew 13, verse 22. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. And I think the hugest lie in the American church today is that this is not a struggle for us, that we have somehow conquered this hill and we have figured out how to do it. And I think Jesus would say, not so fast. How has wealth affected you? 
I was thinking of it kind of like this. I think for many of us, when we look back to younger years, like in high school, in youth group, or college, we can acknowledge and recognize that there was a certain passionate and undivided love for God that existed in our younger years. And the truth is when we look at ourselves now, we don't see that same heart that we once had. And and I, I think it's very easy to dismiss that as saying, hey, you know what, that's just life stages. That's just what it means that you get older and you mature and get to middle age. And the truth is we all mellow because when you're young like that, you just have a lot of passions about everything. That's just how you are in your teenage years. And when you get older, you just get wiser and you just mellow out. But I was also thinking, is it possible that part of the equation is that in those younger years, the truth is we never, none of us really had much money to speak of. And the truth is, in our current stage of life, we all have more disposable income than we had back then. And I wonder if that isn't part of what's happening in our hearts, that the truth is what really excites us is the next big purchase, the next toy that we're going to reward ourselves with, the next awesome restaurant that we're going to try with our family the next promotion that we're hoping for at work, the next dream vacation that we're going to take our kids on. And the truth is, that's where our passions are. And the truth is, all of that is tied to our money. And the truth is, maybe, whether we acknowledge it or not, what we have actually found is that money is purchasing our happiness far more than God is. So many of the things that we may look forward to in the course of our day is rooted in the things that we can buy. I think as much as money seems like a worthy master, in the end, what Jesus and all the other Bible writers warn us is that it is an unstable foundation on which to build a life or a hope for a future. And the message of the Bible is clear that God alone is the one in whom we can put our total trust because he alone is worthy of our worship and will never let us down. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 to 32. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. The promise of God is that he will take care of us. Now, he doesn't guarantee us wealth, but that's not the value of the kingdom, is wealth by this world's standards. In fact, what Christ himself would say is, whoever wants to find his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is the truth that can break the lie of material wealth. It's to say, This world is telling you you need all these things to make you feel like you're going to be happy. But one of the great paradoxes is that it's actually letting all of that go that you discover what true joy is, the true joy of giving, of generosity, of seeing others being blessed by what you can do with your resources for the advantage of others. Some of my happiest years of my life where my years when I was a missionary in Africa, it was not coincidence, I think, that it also was the time when I had the least money in my life. 
I was the poorest in those years, and yet I was the happiest. Not worried about anything, because there was no Amazon shopping to do. There was none of that even available to me. It was just helping people that were so much far needier than I was, that I was crossing paths with every day. And what Jesus is saying is that is the secret of the kingdom. That is the secret joy of the follower of Jesus, is you think that the joy comes when you become selfish and start hoarding for yourself and thinking it's all about me. And Jesus says, when you truly encounter me, I set you free from all that and realize the joy is actually in losing yourself, in giving yourself away to the joy of others and letting God use you in that way. I shared it a bit last week, but... My, my phone and my computer are constantly going off because Pastor Janet in Kenya is just not stopping with telling me story after story uh, of these families that have been touched by this Capture Our Sheep project. And sometimes, like, this, I was just reading one story about this handicapped girl, and she was just awarded one of these sheep, and I almost cried right there. My, and I was thinking, like, this is just $40, $40. Like, I can blow $40 on a ridiculous impulse purchase on Amazon for a, a, a toy that's going to sit in my, in my drawer and I'm never going to touch again. And that $40 is actually changing this little girl's life. And I thought, this is the problem. This is the problem. We've all been deceived. We've all been fooled into thinking that that is life. And Jesus, how great is that darkness when our eyes are not good, but when our eyes can see clearly through the truth of God. How great is the light in the heart of a person. Let's pray.